Merry Christmas, great men and women of God. And Merry Christmas, great boys and girls of God. I love this service. This is one of my favorite services of the year because it is all the family of God together and all the kids here. And I love that. My kids, I know your parents are really stressed out right now and they're like, stop it, stop it. And they probably made you dress up in some outfit that's not super comfortable. But here's the trade-off. In a few minutes, you're going to get to play with fire. Yeah. So just hang in there for just a few minutes, and then that, the fun is coming. So, man, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I, I should introduce myself. My name is Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here. Uh, we've been in Advent for the last few weeks, and uh, you see these big picture frames. We've been talking about portraits of Christmas, and what we're trying to get at is a picture of Christmas that is true. Not like the airbrushed, fancy, modern version of what Christmas has become, but we're trying to strip all of that away and get back to a picture of Christmas that is real. And we've been using the Psalms as kind of the text for that. And the Psalms, they're just so full of realness and full of emotion. And uh, they've kind of helped us recapture this picture of what Christmas really is at its core, not the modern version. But if I'm being totally honest, and I'm, I'm being totally honest with you this morning, uh, I, totally honest, I kind of like the modern version of Christmas. And sometimes, if I'm being totally honest, I like it even better than the real version. Just being honest. I mean, our version, you think about what Christmas has become, especially in our culture, it's huge and it's fun and it's glorious and it just, it, there's, it's hard not to like. Uh, really, this kind of captures what Christmas has become in our culture. Have you seen this? This is an actual house. I don't think this is any of your house. Is it? Is, maybe you have a neighbor like this. We all, there's, a, there's one of these houses on every block, isn't there? And there it is. It's just, it's everything that Christmas could be. It's Christmas at its core. I have said for years, Nothing says unto us a savior is born like giving your neighbor a seizure, right? <laughs> there, there it is. Don't look straight at it. I mean, it's huge and it's fun and it's glorious and it's awfully shiny. Um, that is what Christmas has become. But this is what Christmas actually was. You know, the real Christmas was surprisingly small, almost ridiculously so. It was not huge, it was not fun, it was not glorious. It was the sort of thing that almost no one would notice. And aside from one small incident with a few angels, it was not particularly shiny. And I think about what Christmas is and what Christmas was. And it seems like maybe what's happened is at some point we all decided Christmas just needs a publicist, you know. I mean, this is a good idea, this idea that God, the God of the universe would become this little baby. I mean, that's a great idea. It just needs some wow factor. 
maybe some, uh, some lights, maybe a theme song. You know what it needs? It needs a mascot. That's what it needs. <laughs> I know some of you kids aren't going to recover from that picture, but there, yeah. If it had a mascot, then we'd really get it. And if I'm being totally honest, sometimes I like the extra stuff more than I like the real thing because the real Christmas was incredibly small and it was the sort of thing that almost everyone overlooked. But here's what I want to remind us today. The smallness of Christmas was the point. The smallness of Christmas was the point. Christmas challenges us, especially in this culture, it challenges us to turn our thinking upside down and realize it's not the big, huge things that change the world and make a difference, but it's actually those small things that do. And there's no better demonstration of that than Christmas, than the birth and the life of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not judging us. If your house looks like that, I'm not criticizing. I love that stuff. We'll go look at houses tonight with my family. I I think it's totally understandable how we got here, how we would all want Christmas to be a little bit bigger than maybe it was. I mean, really, I think this is how we got there. If you look around this world, it's a mess, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's it's just a disaster in every sense of the world. Our world is a hard place. You know what it is? Our world is a dumpster fire. Are you familiar with this phrase, dumpster fire? Uh, All the kids are using it. It's very cool, I'm told. Um, Our world is a dumpster fire, and all of us as humans, we kind of have this longing that one day someone or something is going to come along and put the fire out. Wouldn't that be nice? We hope for that. And when we hear that, hey, all-powerful God cares about us, he, he cares about this world, he loves us, it connects to that inner longing that we have, and our expectation and our hopes get a little bit high, they begin to grow. And I think that's why we tend to make Christmas a little bit bigger than the actual fact. I've loved reading the Psalms because um, they, they are full of all of that longing and that expectation and full of high hopes and wrestling with those hopes. In fact, our Christmas Eve psalm today is Psalm 89. If you have a Bible, look at that. It talks about this expectation. It talks about this longing that we have for God to do something. Listen to what the psalmist says. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. The psalmist is saying, listen, God loves us and he's faithful. He loves us, and he's going to prove it. He's going to show it. And then he starts reminding God about all the things that he said, all the promises that he's given. Look at verse 3. You have said, I, may, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And the psalmist is just kind of reminding God. He's saying, listen, don't forget You promised, you promised, God, you were going to do something about this world. There was going to be this descendant of David, and one day this this person is going to come along and, and make everything right, change everything. And he keeps reminding God. Look at verse 19. He's talking to God, and he says, Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I've anointed him. He's talking about David, but he's also looking forward to that descendant of David. He says, I've anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arms shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. 
my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I'll set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And he's saying something I've often longed to say or have said to God, honestly. God, don't forget, you promised. You promised that one day you were going to do something about this fire. You promised that one day someone was going to come, and through that person, this world of death and sorrow and poverty, it would be replaced with this kingdom of faithfulness and steadfast love. And that's a huge promise, isn't it? The Psalms are full of those huge promises. The Psalms are full of this promise that one day God is going to prove he's faithful. One day God is going to prove that he's only ever loved you. One day God is going to prove that his love for us has been unwavering. And in light of the size of those promises, I think it's fair to have high expectations and to have high hopes and to look for something really huge and really big and maybe just a little bit shiny. We never would have expected what actually happened. The Gospel of Luke tells us, verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. She wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. It's almost as if the angel just read that psalm, saying, hey, God is going to fulfill this promise. Jesus is coming, this descendant of David, and he's going to prove his faithfulness, he's going to prove his love. Nothing is ever going to be the same. And while we might expect something huge, what happens next seems almost ridiculously small, doesn't it? Because what happens next is, you know, morning sickness, questionable paternity. What happens next is a little baby, a baby who grew to be a man, but a man who never held a political office, who never made any money, who never led an army, who never started a nonprofit, never even posted one verse on his Facebook page. You know? Jesus' birth was small, but really his entire life was small. And even at the end, the moment that he died, Jesus had a couple dozen friends and family who cared and no one else. And then he rose from the dead, which is, a, is pretty cool. That is impressive. And he floated up to heaven. And at that moment, you could have rounded up all the people who believed in him and believed in what he came to do, and they would have easily fit inside of this room. It was just small. And yet, we know this. Through this small, little life, everything has changed. And through this small little life, God has proclaimed the greatest truth of all, 
that God so loved this world. And what's amazing about Christmas is we see that when God decided it was time, when God decided it's time to redeem this place, when God decided it was time to fulfill these promises, he didn't get all huge. He didn't float down from heaven with lots of lights and the Trans-Siberian Orchestra in the background. He didn't show up promising to make the earth great again. Uh, in fact, he did the exact opposite. When God decided it was time to fix this place, he got really small. And he stepped into real life. And instead of putting out the dumpster fire that is this earth, he experienced it fully in Jesus. And in Jesus, he embodied love for everyone he met. He related to everyone with such respect and dignity that we're still talking about it today. We're still marveling at it today. He taught people how to really love, and then he healed them from that brokenness that keeps us from loving. He sacrificed his life for the sins of the world so that nobody would ever have to fear God's anger. And then he left without much fanfare, and he just said to his followers, hey, y'all keep at it. And that was it. And what we see is that big things don't change the world. Small things do. And in Christmas, we see God say, hey, I'm going to change this world. What if I just do this one thing? What if I show up? and convince them that they're loved. That may not seem like it's big enough, but what if I just show up and convince them that I really love them and nothing has been the same since? You know, I, it, it, it's worth noting, I, even Jesus' mom didn't really expect this. I love her honesty. When the angel shows up and tells her what's gonna happen, like the first words out of her mouth in verse 30, uh, 34, she says, how will this be? Mary asked, since I'm a virgin. Now, I don't think she's just asking a medical question here. I think this is a question of expectations. We have to realize Mary, she'd heard all the promises before. She knew God was going to eventually do something. And just like us, she had that longing in her heart that one day God would show up and do something. This was just the first time she heard how he was going to do it. And her initial response is, well, that won't work. How will this be? I, I, I'll be honest, I was expecting something a little bigger, maybe shinier, is her response. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled then the angel left her. And it's fascinating to me. Even Mary's response to this news is a little smaller than I would expect. I mean, this is like a, a very humble, if you say so, um, I get, you know, I guess I'll trust. I don't really have a choice. If you say so, this is how you want to fulfill the promise. Okay, you're God. And I think that's the core of what Christmas challenges us to do every single year is to trust that God knows what he's doing. To trust that something as small as knowing how much God deeply loves us could change all of these huge problems. You know, Christmas, it's not about the big show. The big show is fun. I enjoy the big show. But Christmas is about this amazing truth that small things matter. And in Jesus, we see this. Jesus was not the epic expression of God's glory. 
I mean, God is huge and he's glorious and he's amazing. That's not what Jesus demonstrates. Jesus was the simple expression of God's love. This simple expression of God's forgiveness. This simple expression, Jesus shows us God is not angry with us. Jesus shows us that whatever we are going through, that that God actually cares, that he's with us, that he's present in the nitty-gritty. And Christmas teaches us that our big, huge, glorious God is also small and present. He's small enough to fit in your life and loving enough to want to. So for thousands of years, we've we've celebrated this night Jesus was born with a very small thing. Uh, We light a simple candle. And it's the perfect metaphor. It's the perfect symbol because we hold this small, fragile flame in our hands. And with Jesus' mom, I think we echo the words, if you say so. God, if you say you love me, if you say I matter to you, I will believe you. May your word to me be fulfilled. You know, I'm sensing today that uh, some of us just need to sit in those small, simple truths. Just sit with God and accept, okay, you love me. I know that's true for me. Uh, God is huge. He can create the universe. He can part the sea. He can raise the dead. But that same God is small enough to be held by a teenage mother and her scared fiance in a dirty manger. You know, it's God's smallness that convinces us that we're loved. It's his smallness that convinces us that he sees us. It's his smallness that changes everything. So we want to celebrate the smallness of our God. Would you stand with me with your candles and let's celebrate the small thing of Jesus.
Before we blow out our candles, I want you to just observe something. The light of one candle is pretty small, isn't it? But something happens when they're all lit, lit and the room starts to glow. This is the brilliance of God, and this is how small things change the world. The love of Christ passed from one person to another for thousands of years until it comes to us as a group. Now let's blow out our candles before someone gets hurt. Uh, before we go, I, I, I want to close with a benediction, and then uh, we're going to sing one song together. 
but I just want to say something, and I want to invite you all into the benediction with me. I don't know about you, I, I am feeling the weight of this broken world. Um, I know that's true at Pulpit Rock. We've had uh, th- these last few months a lot of just hard stuff, looking in the face of, of death and loss and human slavery and abuse and just some really tough things to look at. And it can be overwhelming just to, to look at the darkness of our world. Um, remember, the truth of Christmas is that big things don't change the world, small things do. What the world needs is not something huge. What the world needs is a lot of people to participate in the small things. And if we're going to change the darkness in this world, we're going to do it the same way that our God has done it. And that means we have to get small and stay small. That means we have to step into whatever God's put in front of us, that one person, that one issue, whatever that thing is, we've got to step into it. And when everyone does that, just like all of our small candles brought light to this room. All of our small acts of real love push back the darkness. You may feel small and powerless this Christmas in our crazy world, but you are not alone. You're not alone. The world needs people willing to get small and to love others as deeply as they have been loved. And that is the hope of Christmas is that that small thing changes this big world. You're not alone. And to illustrate that, I thought maybe today we could all say our benediction together to one another. Normally it's just like the person who preach, uh, they say the benediction, but you're not alone. And to illustrate that, let's say this benediction over one another together today. This Christmas... May we lose our infatuation with huge things. May we have the courage to get small and stay small. May our lives be about simple love and may our combined light tear a little corner off the darkness. Amen. He has come. Merry Christmas. Let's celebrate together.